Welcome to Ikigai Stories. I'm Sam Miyushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. Dr. Jake Smith is an instructor at the Flores MBA program at Louisiana State University, where he teaches management classes with an emphasis on leadership, motivation, organizational culture, organizational climate, and performance stress. Topics that are especially relevant as we navigate the changing landscape of everyday life. Awareness and perseverance are two qualities that describe Jake's unique path to academia. His professional career began on the sales desk in the financial services industry, which eventually led him to Australia, where he spent five years working with financial advisors down under. Working in a new country with great people had a lot of advantages, but over time, he began to notice that job satisfaction and motivation were dwindling. As the grind chipped away, it led him to ask the question, if money didn't matter, what would I do? The answer led him to Baton Rouge, where he joined the PhD program as a grad student and upon graduation began his new career as a professor of management at LSU. At the intersection of Jake's professional and personal journey are two required assignments for students, the Kindness Journal and Reciprocity Assignment. Both exercises develop skills in emotional intelligence and compassion, concepts that traditionally have not found shelf space in business school curriculum. These topics create better students, better business leaders, and better humans. But beyond the obvious benefits to the participants in humanity, these exercises serve as a tribute to Jake's mother, Gail. Two weeks prior to recording this episode, Gail Smith passed away at the age of 67 years old after a five-year battle with multiple system atrophy Parkinson's, a terminal illness with no cure. The Kindness Journal and Reciprocity Assignment allowed Jake to show his mother the values and lessons that he had learned from her while growing up in small town Biola, Wisconsin. Jake highlights her intent to always seek out the best in people and a belief that the more good you put into the universe, the better. Jake tells a beautiful story from a couple years ago when he revealed the personal motivation behind the Kindness Journal and Reciprocity Assignment to his students and then thank them for giving him the greatest gift, their school assignments, which he would later deliver to his mother as a Christmas present to bring her happiness and convey the ripple effect of her love and joy onto others. An incredible tribute from a son to a mother that inspires us and reminds us all to be more kind and grateful for the blessings in life. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Jake Smith from Louisiana State University, dedicated to the life, memory, and legacy of Gail Smith. Jake, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. I'd like to first start off with uh, what you're doing currently as an instructor at the Flores School at LSU. Yeah. So as, as you noted, uh, I'm an instructor with the Flores MBA program at Louisiana State University. And uh, I'll just say LSU from now on. It's a lot easier. And uh, essentially my, my role with the, with the program, I also work with the Rucks Department of Management at LSU. Uh, but with the MBA program, I work with the full-time MBA students, 
um, as well as the online MBA students. And I teach uh, basically all the management classes. So organizational behavior, strategic management, things like that. Um, and then for the undergraduates, I run kind of a range of different uh, courses that I teach, everything from principles of management to human resources to a new class that uh, I put together for LSU this past year called uh, Management Mistakes and Failures, uh, which is more of kind of a, a case-based type of class that um, I'm, I'm still refining even after this first semester, uh, although it was the COVID semester. So there were a lot of wrenches thrown in, but uh, there's definitely some uh, some different things that I'll, I'll be tinkering with it going forward to just kind of keep enhancing it, which I, which I do with all the other classes anyways. But uh, so those are the, the two primary areas with the graduates and the undergraduates. And I also... Uh, this past year, is, and, and I, I believe in, into the future, I'm um, also the uh, coach for LSU's MBA case competition team. Um, so there's an SEC case competition that's held every year this, this particular past year um, with the pandemic and everything kind of, again, uh, changed those plans a little bit since we weren't able to all travel to Auburn for that. Uh, but going forward, I'll be, uh, I'll be a part of that as well. So what so what classes are you are you focused on currently? What are the the courses that you're teaching right now? Yep, yep. So I just finished up with uh, strategic management for my MBAs and that management mistakes and failures. Uh, this summer, I'm teaching a group of online MBA students uh, with the organizational behavior, which you know for you know people who aren't familiar with it, it's essentially psychology at work. Uh, and you've been at LSU since 2014, so, yes. right? Yeah, so I've been, I've been at LSU since 2014. Um, I initially came into the university as a graduate student, as a PhD student. And so I uh, essentially was going through the program and in the third year of the program, at least for my department, which was the management department, we start to teach. And so I've been teaching uh, since 2016. So this is my fourth year um, actually engaging with students. What's listed on your teaching interests are uh, organizational behavior, strategic human resource management, leadership and strategic management, and then research interests are uh, motivation, performance, pressure, and stress, organizational climate, and organizational culture. Mm -hmm. So can you just shed some context on both of those, why those four are your teaching interests, and then maybe shed some light on, on the research that you've done on those other four? Yeah, so from, a, from the teaching perspective, it, it kind of casts a wide net. So the way that management is typically set up, and I know there are certain academics who don't like to separate strategy from OB, which is organizational behavior, but that's kind of how the, you know, the management scholars are divided. So there's, there are those who look more at strategic management uh, and have different questions that they're trying to answer through that. Uh, and then there are those who tend to focus more on the micro level. So they call it macro versus micro 
it isn't really a versus, but we all kind of work together in certain different ways. Um, for me, from a teaching perspective, the nice thing going through the PhD program at LSU is that they don't just train us for one specific area as far as, okay, you're going to be OB and you're going to be strategy. You actually get a lot of breadth in that. And so from a teaching perspective, that's great because that's helped me actually get the job that I ended up uh, staying at LSU to, to, uh, to take. Uh, so I was able to have a little bit uh, more than I would say some other programs usually provide. Uh, from, an, from my own interests and my own research interests and things that I, you know, really am excited about, get passionate about, it's, it's more the micro side of uh, the, the management realm. So, you know, as you noted, you know, things like motivation, leadership, uh, organizational culture and climate, performance pressure. I spent the better part of three years. And actually, if you count when I first started looking at it, uh, it's probably closer to four years, uh, you know, working on different ideas around performance pressure at work. You know, why do we feel pressure? Where does it really come from? How do people actually cope with it? And so that's what I spent the, the better part of my, my time in the PhD program working on, um, spe especially with my dissertation centered on that, that you know, that more uh, stress and well-being side, specifically performance pressure. Can you go, can you expand on that a little bit more? Just maybe in terms of the the, the research and then also um, how that would apply to, so we're recording this at the end of May in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, you know, how, so as you think back to the research that you were conducting or maybe that you are tapped into now, what sticks out in the current environment that we're in? Um, as, as, as far as performance pressure or just research in general? Yeah, well, in particular the, on the micro side, so performance pressure, uh, stress. Um, I mean, is there anything that, that you, um, uh, probably a better way to ask it would be, there's obviously a lot of stress and there's a lot of uh, pressure to perform in, in, a, in, in different ways right now. So is there anything that, that you observed in your research that um, would be helpful for people that are trying to navigate kind of uncharted territory right now? Yeah, so it's, inter so yeah, it's interesting. One of the themes that comes up with kind of conversations that I have with professionals and, and, the, and the interesting thing with my online MBA students, virtually every single one of them is engaged in a full-time job. So they are working full-time, whereas usually full-time face-to-face MBA students, um, you know, they're just dedicated students. So a lot of the online MBAers, you know, this is the one class that they're taking or two classes that they're taking in, in any given semester. And so some of the conversations that I've been having with them and some of the questions that they've been asking or ideas that they've been throwing at me is basically saying, hey, you know, with this whole pandemic thing, you know, it's great to work from home. You know, I'm, I'm able to, you know, spend more time with my kids. I just had a conversation with my brother the other day. You know, he was talking about, you know, how it's, you know, you know, been nice to be able to be home and to be able to go outside and throw the football with, you know, with my nephew and, you know, just little things like that where, you know, when he was commuting to downtown Chicago an hour and a half each way every day, you know, those sorts of opportunities aren't really there. And so there's that, that plus side of it uh, where you can have 
more time with your family and everything like that. Um, but there's also, you know, downside to everything. So I've had a lot of people say, yeah, it's great to work from home, but I'm putting in more, more and more hours than I ever have before. Um, another thing is, you know, Hey, I'm managing a team of, you know, 10 different, 10 different associates and, I'm struggling to try and figure out how to best manage them, work with them, coach them, uh, all those sorts of things. And so from a, uh, a managerial perspective, you know, actually from more of an organizational psych- psychology perspective, you know, it's really interesting in these particular times because you have a lot of folks who are, it's, it's that double-edged sword of work, of working from home. There's, there's the added benefits of, Hey, I don't have to commute. You know, I get to have, you know, more time with my family. It's a little bit more of a relaxed environment. The only time you have to dress up is maybe throw on a shirt if you're doing a zoom meeting or something like that. But, uh, you know, you know, for the most part though, it's, you know, pretty, pretty relaxed compared to going into the office. But then there are other people too, who, beyond the fact that uh, they're putting in more hours, they actually miss that face-to-face interaction with their peers. There's that social context that they're not really getting in, in interacting with people at work. You know, for me, one of the interesting things for me that I've kind of come to realize is that I, I like teaching online. You know, I don't mind teaching online, but for me, I really need that face-to-face student interaction to really get me energized and uh, especially having worked with this particular MBA class that uh, is essentially graduating. Well, hopefully we're able to give them a ceremony sometime soon. Uh, but these these folks who I've spent you know the past 12 months essentially working with and not being able to finish that with them, you know that was also that was that was kind of difficult for me and I think it was very difficult for a lot of the students because you know, you enjoy that interaction. You want to have that, that time to, to engage with them face to face and be able to have those conversations where it's more back and forth. Whereas the online environment, unless you're using zoom or something like that, where you can kind of moderate a a live discussion, um, that's great, but that's also difficult when you have 50 plus students, you know, that's a lot of people whose, you know, (laughs) microphones not, might not be off at the same time. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, so I'd love to get your thoughts on, you're at a unique intersection with business and with academia. So I'd love to get your thoughts on just the future of education and the future of work. And, and I like, there's, there's so much uncertainty out there, but I know you're really tapped in to both of those two worlds. And I'm just curious about if you look out, what do you, what do you see in terms of both of those future of work and future of education. All right. So I'll start with the future of work, I think. And we've seen this already with, you know, certain companies saying, Hey, we're going to shift to allow you to work from home more frequently and things like that. Uh, so from a, from a work perspective, I think that you're going to see in, in certain sectors, not every sector, you know, certain sectors you have to be there, you know, you're not going to have restaurants, you know, you know, their staff is not going to be working from home, but in a lot of service sector jobs uh, where you might be able to conduct meetings over Zoom or whatever it might be, um, you're, I think you're going to see more firms kind of adopt that work from home type of model. 
you know, like we've already seen certain things with Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, but it's not just going to be relegated to those big institutions. I think you're going to see a lot of organizations who perhaps pre-COVID were initially hesitant to allow people to work from home because they just didn't know how this is going to work. How are we going to track productivity? You know, how are we going to know that somebody's actually doing their work rather than just kind of slacking off on a particular given day? And now that they were kind of forced to do that and, you know, adjust, I think you're seeing a lot of those perhaps more old school mentality type of firms that thought you had to be in the office every single day and, and, and kind of do things that way. I think some of those, if some of those firms, if you, if, if they have a little bit of time to reflect and think about, okay, how productive have we been during this pandemic? Uh, how have we managed, you know, coaching our employees or what, you know, whatever it might be, I think you're going to see a lot more of that, uh, a lot more of those types of firms uh, start to allow maybe, maybe not complete work from home uh, opportunities, but more flex time or more flexibility in people's schedules to allow, you know, anywhere from a couple days to, you know, three days, four days, whatever it might be per week where they're, they're doing that because they're also getting a crash course in, okay, how are we going to keep the team together? How are we going to have some kind of cohesion? How are we going to share information? How are we going to build a culture? You know, how are we going to get everybody together on the same page and, you know, have this, this unity. And I think a lot of firms um, are currently, you know, forced to navigate that. And I think if they are finding some positive results, you know, there's probably pretty big benefit to some of those firms saying, okay, let's maybe not have an office, you know, of 12 people in Tampa. Let's not you let's not have that expense. You know, let's maybe offer to pay for the the Wi-Fi connection at somebody's house so they can have a home office. So I think you know, if you're looking at it from a real estate perspective, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what our our real estate guys would you know would say about it. Our our, our faculty, but uh, from a from a real estate perspective, you pro, you might see from a commercial perspective more. Uh, more of a shift away from traditional office space to uh, the residential real estate. You know, I'm, I'm right. in the process of buying a house right now and I'm thrilled because I get to have a little room that's going to be my own office. It's not going to be a bedroom that I'm trying to make into, it's an actual actual office. So I'm wondering if that's gonna affect the way that, you know, homes are built too, because if more people are working from home, they're going to be looking for a room that maybe doesn't have a closet in it, but has enough space for a desk and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. you know, I think there's going to be more of that going forward from a work perspective. Um, and then from an, an educational expense uh, perspective, the future of education, I see there's still going to be that face-to-face, -face, you know, on-campus type of environment. You're, you know, we've already seen at not just LSU, but universities across the country, across the world, having online programs. So you can get your undergraduate degree, you can get your graduate degree. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there are too many PhDs that you could get uh, in an online environment or ones that would be really recognized. But, uh, you know, we've already seen that open up educational opportunities for people to, you know, be a part of a university, even when they've never set foot on campus. Uh, I also think that 
you know, it's it's no secret that you know the cost of education has gone gone up uh, exponentially over the years, and you know, without even getting into kind of the the details or or or, or the why, I think the more that the cost goes up, it's going to really and you've kind of seen it already, but it's going to really trigger two things. One, there are going to be some high school students who are going to say, and their parents are going to say, is this really worth it? And maybe they'll pursue other opportunities, trade schools or, or you know, different specialties or just go straight into the workforce. Uh, the other part of it is that, okay, we're going to be paying this much in tuition every year. Now, those people who are funding that, be it the students um, or be it the parents, they're going to want to see a return on that investment. And they're probably going to look at the universities and say, hey, you know, are we really getting that great of an education for our child who we're spending, I'll just give a, a random number, $20,000 a year, whatever it might be, uh, is that going to be really worth that? And especially with the fact that a lot of younger students and high school students in particular are becoming more and more aware of the the debt that some of them have to take on if they don't have parents who are paying for it that's going to be another consideration that they're going to have to make is okay am, am i going to really want to take this on or do i want to just go you know straight into uh straight into to working in, in some way shape or form yeah that's great that's great context on both um thank you for sharing that the um yeah, I, I mean, it'll, it's fascinating to see both work and, and education evolve. Um, it's one of the silver linings of all this. It's kind of like there'll be a, or a focus on appealing back and then a focus on things that, that have value and, and does not. Um, you know, in terms of organizational culture uh, within your classrooms, I'd love for you to, to share how you create culture within within your classrooms yeah so culture culture is kind of a difficult thing and i think you i think i've seen it more with the mba students toward the end of this year because the thing with culture is that it, it takes a long time for it to actually form so culture is really rooted in the the shared beliefs uh, the ideologies, the values that the people of that group have. And so when I walked into the classroom last fall and, you know, it was the first time meeting those MBAs, I could already see there are certain norms, you know, certain behaviors that they, you know, would engage in, certain traditions that they have with football and tailgating and all that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, you could already see there's this established, you know, culture uh, with with those people in the program. So you see it, especially with those who are in the two two year program versus the one years who haven't been together as long. Um, mm -hmm. But you you, you kind of get a pretty good sense of that. Uh, and then as far as you know, within the within the classroom, um, there are certain things that I try to do from a from a consistency standpoint to you know, help, help in the, the overall learning experience. And so just to give you an example, one very, very minor thing that I do, and I know there's uh, other professors who uh, use this, this approach uh, in, in some different ways, but uh, every, every morning I'll be playing music for the, for the students. So I've got, 
you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. I, I go into YouTube. I put together playlists, different themes, different genres. You know, I have all that stuff ready to go and I'll decide, you know, in my drive to campus, okay, which, which playlist are we going to go with today? What songs am I going to lead off with? And usually, right. usually I have, let's say 10, 10 to 15 minutes where I can, I can play music for them. And and I choose songs very, very thoughtfully. One, you know, I want to basically raise the level of energy in the room because most of my classes are in the morning. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter what age you are, how long you've been in school. You know, it's, it's you know, usually harder for most in the morning to bring that energy to learn about, you know, job attitudes or, you know, all that kind of stuff, organizational culture. And so one of the, so, so one of the benefits is that, you know, I'll usually have kind of more upbeat songs to kind of get, get the energy going. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one benefit. The other benefit is uh, when the students don't know each other as well, you know, they don't tend to, socialize with one another before class they'll kind of like just stick to maybe their one friend or whatever and if there's no music it's completely silent in there the energy's low and nobody's really talking to each other and nobody's talking to me because they don't want you know anyone to hear the questions that they're asking me and so i'll have them i'll have the music at a particular volume where students will be talking, engaging with each other. They're, you know, found that they've, they're more likely to come up and talk to me and ask me questions and stuff because they think, well, nobody's listening to me. Nobody can hear this conversation that we're having. They're all off, you know, having their own conversations or singing the song lyrics to themselves or whatever the case might be. So I think it allows them a little bit more comfort to, you know, have those conversations with their, with their friends, their peers, and then also with me. And then the other really great benefit, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog. So as mm. soon as it hits 9 a.m. or whenever the class starts, regardless of where we're at, you know, I'll, I'll usually give them a few extra minutes just because of stragglers, you know. And uh, but as soon as, you know, I turn, I, I click the, the YouTube playlist off right in the middle of the song, as soon as the music get, as soon as the music cuts, that's usually when everybody goes silent and they know, Hey, this is the time that we're ready to, to start mm. focused, hopefully have a little bit more energy. And I even, I even go so far as to solicit feedback about a third of the way through the semester. So I'll ask them what's going well, what's not going well that I could do differently or do better. And mm. I also give them the opportunity. I give them a voice and say, what songs or artists would you like to hear before class? And so then they, then I get this huge list of people of, of artists who I've never heard of before. And I have to go to YouTube and also have to try to find clean, non-explicit lyric type of versions of it because I don't want to deal with all of that. Uh, but you know, there's, there's always, I can always tell because some of them, I know who it was cause I'll, I'll, I'll solicit this anonymously, but I can usually tell uh, for some of them, okay, I know this. I know this guy requested this song. You know, he wants "Life Is a Highway," not the Tom Cochran version, but the Cars version. Done. I'll do it. You know, and, and they get a kick out of it, and it's you know a little thing that kind of helps lighten the mood, set, sets the tone for the day. And like I said, especially in the mornings when you might be dragging a little bit, it's something that for for most students, not all students, but for for most students, it kind of 
helps give them a little bit more energy and makes it a little bit more of a positive experience. Love it. I love it. What's what, what, what are some of the songs on the playlist, your playlist? Oh my gosh. Um, I have everything. I'll, I'll just give you art. Like, I'll give you the range of artists. I have everything from Chris Stapleton to notorious B I G to Wu Tang to, um, Ariana Grande to, I mean, you name it. I, I, I have, and, and you can actually thank my, my uncle Randy got me into eighties hair bands when I was a kid. And nice. so I have a poser mania playlist where I've got, you know, white snake, like, you know, I got Bon Jovi poison, all of those. And so depending on, and of course I'm a big nineties alt fan. I'm a big nineties alt rock fan. I mean, you're out in Seattle, so I'm, I'm assuming that's still alive and well, but uh, you know, for me, I, I've got a playlist for, for all of those stone temple pilots, smashing pumpkins, you know, nice. all of them. So uh, just nice. on my mood too, but also, what I think, you know, will work well with the class on a given day, even game day Fridays. So if I have a Friday class or even a Thursday class, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll play Colin Baton Rouge, you know, the, the, the Garth Brooks, song, you know, I'll, I'll play all the, the, the traditional LSU, Louisiana Saturday night, all of those get, get played to kind of get people fired up. But um, yeah, I try to mix it up and try to keep it fun. And that usually helps set a, a positive tone because I've, I've been in classrooms where you go in, sit down, especially if you get there early, you're sitting there for, you know, 15, 20 minutes in silence. That just doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. So I, I figure maybe other people are the same way. Uh, yeah. Listeners can't see this, but I'm wearing a flannel uh, <laughs> you know, in honor, in honor of the grunge movement uh, in Seattle. All right. So just one last question on this music. This is so fascinating. I love so many things about it. Are you, are you pulling themes in the songs into the curriculum or what you're teaching that day? Or is it just an energy thing? Mostly an energy thing. I have brought in at times certain, I guess, themes that 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 kind of tie to usually they go unnoticed but sometimes sometimes they don't or i'll just actually write into the slides you know some lyric that ties to whatever we're talking about the other thing i forgot to mention when i when i when i teach if i have a class on wednesdays for any of any of you who are mean girls fans that that movie you know on wednesdays we wear pink well i have i have pink wednesdays on, on wednesdays we listen to pink so i actually have a pink playlist and nice. when i tell them because they're all like why are we listening to so much pink you know why is every song pink on wednesdays and then i'll i'll give them the uh, the punchline and it's either like a really bad dad joke or most of them actually really appreciate it because they love the movie <laughs> Equally impactful. Um, uh, okay, so how about can can you can you talk about the what the um, so the the I want to get this right. Is it gratitude journal? Is that correct? Or kindness journal? Kindness journal. Or, yeah. Okay, so can you talk about the kindness journal? So we'll kind of start to slowly make a make the shift here um, about your personal journey. But can you talk about the kindness journal um, and the reciprocity assignment thank you the reciprocity no assignment. yes yeah. yeah so so there are two two different projects that i run with with every class with the exception there were two two classes that it wasn't as easy to incorporate this this past semester uh but for every other class that i've taught i i have basically one of two if not both assignments and and one is called the reciprocity assignment the other is called the 
30 days of kindness journal. And so uh, the reciprocity assignment is essentially, it's, it's, it's really easy. Uh, it's, I have students write about something that they're trying to achieve, accomplish, attain, obtain, whatever it might be. It could be something as simple as, you know, hey, I'd like to get an autographed football from Joe Burrow to uh, I'm trying to get an intern, get an interview with an intern for an internship with Google, or I'm trying to help, you know, my, my parents deal with an ailing grandparent who is struggling to adjust to life after surgery and, and, and all sorts of different things. I mean, it's, it's, it, it can really run the gamut. And so I have students think about it, write about it. And then uh, what I've done more recently, I used to have students come up one by one and at the start of class, usually I'd have a couple students each class throughout the semester uh, come up and ask their fellow classmates for help. But what I've been doing more recently is just kind of setting up uh, you know, their response. I'll print them off. I'll put, post them around the room and I'll also post kind of like a sign-up sheet below their request. And I'll dedicate a, a chunk of one of the classes just to allow them to go around the room read each of their fellow classmates requests what they're trying to do what they're trying to accomplish and then write their name their contact you know details and and how they might be able to assist in, in that endeavor um, because i think with this particular assignment most of us our default is to not ask for help you know with Right. with pretty much anything we we're right. kind of taught in early age just you know put your head down try to try to work through it um you know and we also aren't as uh, aware of all the people who would not only be able to help us who might be able to help connect us with somebody at that internship that you want uh, to get but also that they'd be actually willing to help you and so there's this reluctance to ask for help and there's also this belief that people aren't going to be willing to help even if you did ask and it's been so fascinating to me throughout throughout the the last four years to see so many students who otherwise would have never known each other they sat in class together they never sat together but you know one of them is is struggling to to make something in their in their world happen and there's this other person who said hey actually i you know i went through something similar here's what i did seeing them connect uh and being able to help them you know achieve some of the, you know some of these things and for me that that was always you know a really really interesting thing to to find because uh you know what we're you know often told is that you know there's there's so much bad in the world and that people aren't you know, very generous with their time. And this kind of segues right into the, the 30 days of kindness journal, uh, which, you know, usually when I, <laughs> when I announce these two projects at the start of the semester, I, there's in, the inevitable eye rolls in the back of the room, <laughs> um, you know, like what, what are we doing? A kindness journal. This is, this is, this is college. What, what is the deal? Uh, but and these are MBA students, MBA right? students and undergrads. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. so, so I run it with all of them and, uh, the, yeah, there's always the eye rolls and it's always, it's always kind of funny to me because, uh, not all the time, but I would say 90% of the time, those, uh, those people who were the eye rollers at the start of the semester are the ones who in, in the final feedback of the, of the assignment, uh, or the project, they, they say, this is one of the coolest things that I've done at LSU. Uh, and, um, with the, with the 30 days of kindness journal, 
similar kind of setup and saying, you know, hey, people people are more willing to, you know, or people people are more decent, more civil than what we're led to believe. You know, we're told that we lived in we, that we live in highly polarized times that you know, people aren't great, you know, they're against each other for political reasons or whatever it might be. And the reason that I, I kind of brought this brought this forth is saying, okay, I want I want you to, to, to document uh, just in a couple sentences, you know, they don't have to go into great detail, but for, for every single day for 30 days, I want you to write about something kind or decent or civil that you did for somebody else. Uh, and then in another couple sentences, uh, write something kind or decent that somebody else did for you or that you witnessed, you know, somebody doing for somebody else. Very simple, easy to do, 30 days. And I actually did this before asking my students to because I'm never going to ask students to do something that I haven't done myself. So I, I, I went through and went through the 30 days and even I kind of got a little annoyed at first. I'm thinking, okay, it's kind of <laughs> hard. This, this is harder than I thought because what usually happens and this is the feedback that i've received from a lot of students is that it's easier to see what other people are doing for us because we know how it makes us feel but when we're supposed to write down something that we did that was nice to somebody else or some something that was kind or decent it was much harder to th to think back and reflect on your day okay so what did i do that that actually had an impact and we set the bar much, much higher for ourselves than, you know, than what we do for others. I've had, I've had students, you know, is write something as simple as I was having a really bad day and I was walking past this person and they smiled at me and that just kind of turned around my afternoon, you know, just made me feel good. You know, sometimes we don't see ourselves in the way that others see us and the things that we do. And so a big part of it is forcing you over the course of 30 days to look for those things. And the purpose is to try to change that lens through which you see the world and mm. to see that people are much more kind, much more decent, much more willing to help you. And the reason that I bring this into my, my management classes, my, my organizational behavior classes is that we know from an abundance of research that's out there that people who are much more giving with their time, their ideas, their energy, their effort to their colleagues, they're the ones who tend to have higher performance ratings. They tend to be much more well-liked by their colleagues. Uh, they tend to have their ideas more seriously considered versus those who uh, maybe aren't as generous with their time and energy and effort. And so there's some huge, we call those idiosyncrasy credits. And, and there's, there are huge benefits to um, that individual, even though in most cases, the, the people who are kind and giving and decent, they're not doing it to gain that. It's just kind of that extra um, byproduct of being a nice and decent person that kind of flows back to you. Um, and so there's also that warm glow effect when you do something nice for somebody else that, that feels good to do good. And it's also, you know, we see there's a ton of research on how these things are very contagious. You see somebody else helping another person out or, you know, kind of going that extra mile to help their colleague. We we're talking about culture earlier. That becomes part of that shared values. And, and, and the reason that values and, and culture actually matters is that that in turn drives behavior in organizations. 
you know, this is what's expected of me as a part of this team, as a part of this organization, as a part of this class. This is the kind of behavior that's expected. And if you don't meet that, then you're probably not going to fit in. You're probably not going to last very long because if everybody else is kind of pulling together and, and, and really trying to, to help each other out, it's more selfless and things like that, you're obviously, that's going to spread, you know, uh, just, just in the same breath as if you're on a team with people who are very closed off, aren't very willing to share their ideas, offer you help or anything like that. They're going to be um, setting that that culture for the team as well. And there's not a lot of people that who I know of that actually want to work in organizations or on teams like that. Is there a student that comes to mind that had a had a had an experience that reinforced this this concept? Um, let me think here. I think there. There was one in particular early on when I first started running the reciprocity assignment. Um, he was struggling uh, with essentially his his grandmother had uh, gone through some some really troubling times. So she she became widowed. So she was struggling to adapt to that. Uh, I believe she took a fall. So she ended up having to have surgery. She previously up to that point was a very active person, went and did everything all the time. And now she's alone and kind of relegated to, you know, sitting around. And so with that, she didn't accept that. She kept trying to push herself to do things, which ended up re-injuring herself. And the family's like, we don't really know what to do. And so the grandson was in my class and he kind of threw it out there to everybody. And this is when I was having them stand up in front of class and, and ask you know, and kind of give their, their pitch for what they're trying to accomplish. And he's just like, I'm just trying to figure out how to, how to best help her adjust to her new life. And it was incredible. We spent probably 15 minutes and so many students were like, Hey, this, this sort of thing happened with, you know, my grandparent here, are a couple of different things that we did. And it was one of those things that I, I really, it really reinforced, you know, the, the idea that, we can we can accomplish some pretty cool things and we can actually offer some ideas and insight and help for uh for for those people and the, and the feedback from him i've actually kept in touch with him over the years uh they were able to find different ways to keep her keep her active but in a mm. uh in a more reasonable sense and, and, and to also keep her keep her uplifted keep her spirits alive um so that's that's one of them that comes to mind there was another class that a summer class that i taught there was only maybe 25 students. And on, on the particular day that I had a student uh, get up in front of class, there was probably less than 20 who actually showed up. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is not going to happen because, you know, the guy was looking for, uh, he was trying to get an inter interview for an internship with ESPN. That was his mm -hmm. big dream. And I thought, okay, we're going to get crickets and now I'm going to have to try to figure out how I'm going to help this guy. Cause I didn't have any contacts at ESPN all out of the, I'll just say 15 people who were there, five of them either knew someone or had a family member who worked at ESPN. Wow. And, you know, got him connected. Um, he didn't end up getting the internship, but he, he got his foot in the door. He, he, he got the interview that he wanted. And so, yeah. you know, little things like that where even I didn't expect him to be able to get help with something. Even I was surprised that, you know, that there were so many people because the other part of it is that you don't know 
how many degrees of separation you are from someone who might actually be able to help. You know, you, you know, you might not know that, you know, somebody also went through a similar experience in their life. Um, you know, I had uh, an, another student who uh, she, she initially had a, a particular request to try and get in, uh, in for an interview with, I think it was Epic Games or something like that. And uh, her family, um, ended up getting their, their family home destroyed in Hurricane Harvey. She was from Houston. Mm-hmm. And so for her, she switched it up at the last minute and, you know, asked for help. And there were actually students who went online and donated to, you know, help, you know, the, the family recover and stuff like that. So it's just, for me, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to see people who, you know, again, otherwise would not have known each other, but they were in the same class during the same semester and they were always willing to to offer their time, ideas, insight, assistance, and um, you know, and, and there's so much benefit just you know outside of work. Just that's more of the kind of world that I would prefer to live in, where people actually right. you know care about each other, and we can actually see that. And again, with the 30 Days of Kindness Journal, it's shifting that lens through which you see the world. And I think that's such an important 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 piece of it to see people for their good rather than see them for any potential bad, you know, the, the moment that we meet them or that we see them, they might look different from us or they might act differently, but uh, just kind of shifting and trying to see people and our interactions in a more positive light. Uh, I think that leads to definitely a more positive ex- existence, but I think, I think students have, have responded really well to it. And I've, I've been so proud of my students. You know, there are certain requests, like I mentioned, where I, I've been pretty certain that there's nobody in, in class that's going to be able to help them. And sure enough, you know, almost every single time, there's at least one person, if not more people who, you know, are able to, to offer their, their help or insight or assistance with whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's such an incredible experience because I think people generally have a willingness to help, but there are either self-imposed barriers or actual barriers that just limit. They they want to help, they just don't know how to help, right? So actually yeah. manufacturing that environment where they can do it uh, and do it at such an, an important stage in their life where they're absorbing and they're learning. Uh, the ripple effect is is powerful as those you know as those students go into their professional work lives. Yeah, I mean, because I see it as my responsibility as an educator, not just to give them the the explicit knowledge of you know organizational psychology or management or leadership or anything like that. I see it as my responsibility to develop better young professionals or better just better people and. If I can find a way, which which I've which I've been able to find a way with these two projects in particular, to to try to do that uh, to to a certain extent, uh, then 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 I think we're that I'm that I'm actually getting somewhere. Yeah, it's experiential learning at its at its best. Yeah. So yeah. Um, okay, so let's shift gears a bit here. Uh, we've known each other for some time. I knew you before you you were Doctor Jake Smith. <laughs> um, so the shift gears, you know, I just say, let's start where you want to start. Um, I, there's a, we have some similar stops on our journey. We, you were, you're from a small town in Wisconsin. I'm from a small town in Nebraska, but we've right. had some similar stops uh, on the way. 
Then they started in Iona, Iona, Wisconsin. Viola, 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 Wisconsin. So population, I think it's around 600, 700 right now, which uh, according to my parents, even a few years ago when it wasn't that high, uh, it was getting too busy. So it is a, (laughs) it is a small town, but a a growing town. Uh, But yeah, so I grew up in a small town, Viola, Wisconsin, uh, and I, you know, had two incredible parents, uh, best, you know, best parents I could have ever asked for, uh, Ben and Gail, and then my brother, Ben Jr., uh, best, best older brother I could have ever had, you know, I just, I, I owe so much of the things that I'm doing now to the, to those three people. I mean, we could, we could fill out an, an entire podcast for that, but, uh, you know, growing up, I always wanted to do what my older brother did, you know, so I never, it took me a while to start blazing my own trails, I guess, because, you know, my, my, whatever sports that Ben played, I would play, you know, we played, you know, basketball, football, baseball, and in high school, you know, basketball and football, he was a senior when I was a freshman. So I, we got to play together a little bit, uh, and, and, you know, ran track and everything like that. And then he went to, went to school at the university of Wisconsin, Whitewater. And that's, that's, uh, you know, a time when he and I started to get more and more close because um, I think my freshman year of high school, I realized, oh man, my brother's going to leave, you know, wh- what am I going to do? And so once he, once he went to school at Whitewater, well, that kind of narrowed down the, the choices that I had when I, when I was applying to school. So it was either for me, Madison or Whitewater, and I, I chose Whitewater. So I, I followed him. So I was again, a freshman when he was a senior, uh, he was a finance major. So I said, Hey, I'm going to be a finance major too. Okay. He was in the finance association. Okay. I'm going to be in the finance association too. So I basically just did everything that my brother did because he did it so well. He's, he's, he's such a bright and talented guy that I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll just do what he did. And you know, if, if I turn out, if my life turns out like his, I'll be pretty happy, you know? And so, you know, he, uh, he, he graduated, uh, he actually graduated on time. He only took four years. I took five. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, you know, has been working in, in Chicago, uh, as an, as an underwriter for directors and officers, liability insurance for, uh, for a while now. So he's, he's been at a, at a couple different firms, but stayed in, in the Chicago area. Um, and, uh, when, when I was in school, uh, I got involved again with the finance association, which ultimately led to, and this is again, my brother kind of leading the way my freshman year, he's like, you're getting involved in this and you're going to go after internships. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so the, the first internship I had was, you know, with a commercial real estate firm with you know, uh, working with one of his roommates at the time who was, who was previously the intern there now working full time. And so I had internships there. I had an internship with uh, Strong Capital Management just outside of Milwaukee, uh, like a lot of our old Russell colleagues, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and so I got to meet Brad Young and, and a lot of those guys, Matt Keefe, um, Jerry Rossi, a lot of guys who I got along with really, really well and who I looked up to. And um, ultimately, uh, I decided, well, I, I like these finance classes, but I also want to study abroad for a semester. And so um, uh, I just, you know, with, with a, a couple of buddies and, and, and I decided, okay, we're going to go to the Czech Republic for a semester. 
And the way that the timing worked out, it was going to have to wait until my senior or to my second senior year, I guess you could say my fifth year. And so that gave me extra time for classes. And so I said, hey, let me take, you know, let me take psychology as a minor. Finance, psychology, those might go hand in hand. You know, let me let me do that. And I found out in, in those classes that actually I enjoyed finance, but I was just much more naturally driven and interested in the psychology topics and, and, and the stuff that we talked about in class. And so I uh, had an awesome experience in, in the Czech Republic as a, what was I, 22 year old or something? Yeah, I think I was 22 at the time. Um, and that kind of, you know, instigated this travel bug in me because up until that time, I, you know, I had been on a plane once in my life, you know, I, I and, and that was during college when we took a, a, a finance association trip to New York. And so, uh, you know, it really developed this, you know, interest, this really deep interest in me to, to travel, to, to get to meet new people, see new places, experience different cultures. And uh, after, after I graduated, uh, I started with Russell Investments in, uh, in their Milwaukee office at the time. And uh, just kind of started on the mutual fund wholesaling side. Yeah, I love Tim Halverson. I mean, he he was one of those guys that early on in, in my time in Milwaukee, just he took he took a genuine interest in me and in my development, and I was just lucky to have somebody like him to 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 work with. And I still I still keep in touch with him to this day. I mean, it's just you know I'm I'm very very blessed to to have worked with so many really talented people who for one reason or another took an interest in helping me and uh, i mean fortunately for me i was just placed on some really great teams with some really great leaders you know i had you know a guy like peter maroney who was known as the godfather at russell um and and, and matt who i knew from the from the days at strong you know stephanie stowe now stephanie buttram you know i was just um christiana kobe and i was just placed on such a such a great team that you know, I, I was able to learn a lot, grow very quickly. Ultimately, that helped lead to a promotion opportunity to to move down to Tampa. And you know, had I not gone through and done the study abroad, I don't think I would have had the courage to to move from Wisconsin down to Florida. And so I hopped on a plane and uh, moved down to to Florida, where I worked with another batch of just you know phenomenal people uh, down there. And uh, it was in a kind of an internal sales role. And then I moved uh, very quickly, and, and I would say too quickly, uh, promoted into more of a face-to-face -face external sales role, which happened to uh, start on July 1st, 2008. For, so for those finance people, you know, that probably was not the greatest environment for a 24-year-old, 25-year-old, you know, kid who, you know, I still looked sort of young, but I looked really young back then and going into offices in Boca Raton and Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale and Miami and trying to navigate this wholesaling gig during the worst economic crisis of, of my time, my lifetime at that point. Um, and I was just getting beat up, you know, office to office. And, you know, I was so inexperienced and in trying to conduct client seminars and presentations. It was just, it was a very humbling experience. And the, the firm, uh, so Russell at the time, they had the Business Optimization Initiative, BOI, which was a very fancy way of saying, we're going to let quite a few of you go. And uh, for me, 
I wasn't one of the casualties, but uh, I was asked to take take a demotion back to my old role. And so for me, it was it was humbling because up to that point, I was I think the youngest person at the firm who was doing that face to face role, and you know I, I, I you know kind of took it as you know, this is, this is, this is, this is my Michael Jordan moment where I'm going to take notes and I'm going to make this stuff up in my head and I'm going to try to come back, you know, stronger than ever. Um, well with that, I was able to work with a guy named Jay Gentry, who just always, he was a very good teacher and he was, um, very much supportive about helping me get to the, the next place, the next level, wherever that might be. And the very first manager that I ever had at Russell uh, was Scotland Jacobson and one of the one of the nicest guys uh, that, that I've ever been able to work with but Scotland remembered a conversation that we had when I first started at Russell and this was probably four years to you know maybe the day that, that he called me up and he had asked me early on where do you where do you want to be in five years you know that that question which you know, if you ask somebody in, 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 I saw the joke, if you ask somebody in 2015, where do you see yourself in five years? Everybody was wrong. Um, <laughs> but you know, he, he had asked me, you know, where do you, where do you see yourself in five years? And, and at that time I was, my, my traveling interest was at its peak. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to work in London or wherever they'd send me to. And I told him I'd love to work in one of our international offices. And so he, he remembered that. I don't know how he remembered that. It's just a testament to him and, and the kind of person that he is. But he called me up out of the blue one day and he said, hey, are you still interested in international opportunities? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what do you think about Australia? And I'm just thinking this big, this big old island, like so far halfway around the globe, and I knew, I, I, I really, I was, I, I knew very little. I mean, when, as far as my knowledge of Australia was concerned, it was Crocodile Dundee, um, <laughs> call that a knife. Uh, you know, it was a lot of- Outback Steakhouse? Yeah, Outback Steakhouse, the Bloomin' Onion, which is so funny that there's nothing Australian about the Outback Steakhouse, but that's another conversation. Um and so I was like, okay, let me, let me think about it. And I talked to a couple of different people who had been in some of the different offices. And I remember one of the conversations I had and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to decide if I want to do this. And, and it was basically phrased to me, there is no choice. Like you have to go. This is such a great office, such a great opportunity. And so I said, okay. So I'd never been to Australia again, hopped on a plane, flew to a different country and uh, they, they took a chance on me to open up their internal sales operation um, for, for their wholesaling uh, side of the business. And so I worked for, you know, an in, incredible, you know, manager. Her name is Patricia Curtin. And she uh, essentially gave me all the autonomy in the world to make the role, you know, what it was and to, you know, try out different things like compensation plan. Like I wrote my own meal ticket. I actually wrote my own compensation plan when I moved down there and we tried out a few different things with the, the sales team and all of these different things that I was able to do, especially, especially in, in those early years in Australia, those are things that I'm able to bring to, to the classroom as far as, you know, here's, you know, here, here, are, here are examples of good managers and bad managers, uh, and, and here, are, here are different things that I was able to do. And 
ultimately helped uh, work, work on the team uh, that launched the Australian ETFs uh, for, for Russell down there, which uh, unlike the US, the, the, the ETF business in Australia is still going and it's still going very strong. And uh, I thought I was going to be down there for maybe a year, two years max. Well, four and a half years later, I was still working down there. But uh, part of my journey in Australia, I know I'm getting kind of long-winded here, Sam. Sorry, you're going to have to edit me. Keep going. No, keep going. <laughs> but what, but one of the one of the things when when I was working in Sydney is that I got the opportunity to uh, be that external. So going into a full-time external sales role where I was meeting face-to-face -face with you know stockbrokers, financial advisors, and selling these ETFs. And so the the really cool thing for me was that I was able to, you know, travel around, you know, on, on the company's dime, which was always nice, but I was able to see more of Australia. I got to go to all the different, uh, all the different cities and, you know, get to meet some really incredible people. And I mean, I, I was so fortunate to work with, you know, some, some really smart, very driven, you know, professionals in, in, on that team in Australia, you know, guys like you know, David Rothery and Tom Avnerud and Scott Bennett and, you know, some of these guys who I, who I became very close to and, um, and I, I, I couldn't, I, I possibly can't list them all off, but I was just very, very lucky to be in the right place at the right time where, you know, I had people who, you know, supported me personally and professionally and helped me develop my skills uh, to, to a point where, you know, I thought I was doing a, a pretty decent job at what I was, what I was tasked with doing and I enjoyed it. It was, it was good work. I was making really good money. And uh, the one thing that I, I kind of started to realize though was living out of a suitcase. And I'm sure there's people out there who are listening can, can relate living out of a suitcase started to take a toll on me. And I was, I was still fairly young. I was in, you know, my, my very early, early thirties. And, uh, it just, it was, it was fun to go and see and experience all these new places. Uh, there was, there was one time in particular where I was staying at the, the Sofitel in Brisbane and Jason Alexander. So George Costanza yeah. was staying in the room directly opposite of mine. And so I got to talk to him. So there were like, there were so many just random cool experiences that I was able to have, but, it just, it really took a toll on me. It took a toll on me physically. Um, you know, when you're entertaining clients, you know, dinners, drinks, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, just my, my, my satisfaction with that, that part of my life started to dwindle a little bit. My, my motivation for it started to dwindle a little bit. Like I said, the money was great and I liked the people, loved the people who I was working with and, and loved being in Australia, but um, I was still feeling that pull back to the U.S. And I kind of kept asking myself, and, and the other thing was, and there are some people who can do this job and do that job phenomenally well and they're great people um but i knew that if i would continue down that path of kind of being that external wholesaler uh it was going to be a struggle for me from a personal standpoint to be the kind of uh you know husband father family man that that i wanted to that having that and it's not even so much a balance, but it's giving priorities and being able to be there for things like soccer games or recitals or whatever. And I was single at the time. I didn't have any, you know, any, any kids or anything at the, at the time, but uh, you know, I wanted that as a part of my future. And I thought if I keep, 
if I keep down this path, I don't think my life would be very conducive to those sorts of things. And so I kept asking myself, you know, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? If money didn't, if, if, if the money didn't matter, you know, if, if I could just do whatever it was, what would it be? And ever since I was an undergrad, uh, I had a really deep interest, a deep, you know, a desire to become a university professor. Uh, I had uh, one professor in particular, Dr. John Howlett, who uh, is affectionately known by everybody uh, who had him at UW-Whitewater as Dr. J, which is a moniker that I've adopted. Uh, and my students actually don't know this, that when they call me Dr. J, they're actually, you know, paying homage. They're, they're, they're honoring the, the guy that ultimately inspired me, you know, or was one of, one of the biggest inspirations from an academic standpoint for me to, to go into, into this profession. And so I always, you know, I was like, this would be such a great job. I, I love the, the campus environment. Uh, I think I would love to teach. I'd love to work with students at this level. And so, you know, it kind of came back to, okay, what am I interested in? And it was, you know, what's, what's that thing that's inherently interesting? Because finance just wasn't inherently interesting to me. Like I, I enjoyed it and it was something that I, you know, could, could wrap my head around, but I just didn't really enjoy it that much. And I always came back to, okay, the things that I read, you know, biographies or if I'm reading an article or whatever, it's all about the human element. It had nothing to do with the numbers. It was always back to the humans. What makes leaders more effective than others? How do you run better teams? All that sort of stuff. And so I knew I was interested in that. I knew that I really had this deep desire to, to teach students and to work with students uh, at the university level. And so when I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the things that were interesting to me, um, it, it, it kind of led to a, a great conversation that I had with um, my, one of my best friends, uh, Dr. Michael Freimark, uh, he uh, was going through a PhD program at the time in management and he was talking about some of the things that they do. And I'm like, that's exactly, that's exactly what I want to do that, you know, he was, so he was the one who really kind of encouraged me and said, Hey, take the GMAT, you know, while you're down there, try to, try to knock that out, you know, still work and do all that stuff, but, you know, try to find a way to, to get the GMAT done and just apply to, to whatever schools that you're interested in. And I did that. I was terrible at the GMAT. I'm, I'm really not that smart. Uh, I just kind of work hard. And so it took me a while to get the GMAT score, that I really wanted to get to be able to apply to these programs with with any sort of confidence. And uh, when I when I uh, initially released my scores, uh, LSU was actually one of the schools that proactively reached out to me, and um, the, uh, the 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 team there said, "Hey, have you, have you considered LSU? You know, we, we know that you're interested in management, going into this and this, and." You know, just it just said a really good. You know, I had a really good feeling about it. I thought, you know, this is actually they're reaching out to me. I hadn't been recruited like that, you know, before. And there were a few schools that did that, but LSU was was one of the first, and uh, they had set such a gave gave such a positive first impression. Where I was like, okay, could I see myself in Baton Rouge? I've never been to Louisiana, but I was I'd never been to Tampa before I moved to Tampa. I'd never been to Australia before I moved to Australia. Sure, Baton Rouge sounds pretty good. I love college football, LSU college football, being in the South. Like it doesn't it doesn't really get get any better than that, right? And so 
uh, you know, one thing led to another. They they offered me a spot in the program, and uh, in in 2014, I kind of moved my life again back to to the U.S. and uh, started that started that new journey to um, to try and figure out, you know, what my what, what academia was going to be like, which surprisingly I knew so little about. You know, it's it's kind of sad and and almost a little uh, scary reflecting on how little I knew about the career that I was getting myself into <laughs> and what the PhD program would really entail because I would talk to my friends and they'd be like, Oh, you're back in college again. That's awesome. You know, you're at LSU too. That's great. How many football games you've been to zero because I have <laughs> no life. It is nothing like being an undergrad. That first semester was actually one of the first times where I had, I had a handful of experiences where I questioned, am I actually smart enough to do this? Yeah, I've, I've, I've failed at, you know, certain things, you know, throughout my life, but nothing's, you know, super major where I wasn't able to recover or do some, but I actually can, after, after that first semester, after taking that last final exam, when I didn't have any grades in, I knew that, you know, the, there were a couple struggles that I had in particular with, with one, uh, one statistics, statistics class, I thought, am I going to be asked to leave? You know, am I going to be, you know, is this, Maybe, maybe I'm not good enough for this. And when I got my grades back and I remember having a conversation with my mom and she said, you know, everything's going to be fine. You're, you, you're being a little too hard on yourself. And I got my grades back and the grades were great. And, and uh, that, that Christmas break, um, I met up with, um, one of my one of my very one of my very close friends uh not only in the program but to this day uh, eric taylor he's he's a professor over at east carolina university now but he was a part of the program and the cohort ahead of mine and he invited me to be a part of a project that that he was working on and so i thought well because i thought eric was one of the smartest guys that i've ever met and i still think he's incredibly smart and if he ever listens to this his head will explode uh but you know, I thought, hey, if Eric's asking me to be a part of a project, you know, maybe maybe I do belong here, right? And so after getting through that first semester and some of the rough patches, then I kind of started to figure out the things that I was interested in from a research standpoint and I uh, was able to work with some really talented, really smart people along the way. Um, you know, Dr. Jeremy Buse was my, my dissertation chair. I couldn't have picked a better, a better person to, to chair my dissertation. He, um, was, uh, very much out of his, his, uh, research zone with performance pressure. And I even did a qualitative dissertation, which he was a quantitative guy and, uh, brought Dr. Blake Mathiasen. He's at Indiana university now who did more qualitative. So I worked with just such a great, great group of people and, uh, they were able to help uh, kind of guide me through the the dissertation process to put together something that finally, now that I'm through my first full year of, of teaching full time, um, I'm, I'm able to uh, pick back, pick up that data again. And I'm actually going to try to do something from a, from a publishing standpoint with that. So stay tuned. That's, that's great. So, so I'd love for you to talk about um, a couple things. One is just awareness, right? So you, you, there, there are, moments throughout that entire journey where you were keyed in, you had a, you had a internal self-awareness. So I'd like, like for you to talk about that. And then, and then also um, perseverance from Viola to Tampa to Sydney 
to Baton Rouge. I mean, there were, there are crossroads throughout that journey. What was driving this awareness? And then also just this last part here about perseverance, like imposter syndrome, and maybe not thinking that I've got it, but then pushing through and realizing that, that you do have it. So can you talk about both of those two, please? Yeah. So from an, uh, I guess an awareness standpoint, it's, it's, it's hard when you're, <laughs> when you're in the mid, like in the thick of things where you actually admit to yourself, maybe I'm a little bit out of my element. So the example that I gave, you know, earlier with, you know, I got promoted a little too quickly. Well, I was, I was younger and I was also very proud of, you know, or, you know, of getting that promotion. Um, but I knew, I knew deep down inside, I was probably a little too quick to that, but you know, I, I was very driven, you know, I thought, Hey, I can figure this out. And like I said, it was, it was a very, <laughs> very challenging market environment to, to kind of get into. And when I had to take that demotion, I, I took it, I took the perspective of it was, it was humbling and it was, it was a little bit frustrating because, you know, I had put in a lot of time and effort, but it was also a sense of relief because I looked at other people who were in my office, some people who had way more financial responsibilities, families, mortgages, stuff like that, who lost their jobs completely. And so yeah. that gave me a little bit of perspective because a, I had that survivor's guilt, right? So there were, you know, there was a period of time where I thought, why, why do I still have a job when these people who probably need it more than I do, they're, they're out of a job. So I felt a sense of responsibility to do more and to do as good of a job as I possibly could during that, during that particular time. Um, and then when, you know, I was having those moments in, in Australia when I was living out of a suitcase and it just, it was a, it was a good job. I was enjoying it. I was giving so so many different opportunities through it, but I just, it just wasn't driving me. I could just tell, I just didn't have that internal interest that, you know, internal drive that was going to propel me day in and day out. And it, and it got to the point where there were certain days where I just wasn't really looking forward to that grind. Whereas now, you know, no, I don't like grading, but I do like providing feedback, right? I do, I, you know, I do like being able to, to, you know, help students develop their skills. And so even in the things that are a little bit more tough and difficult to push through in my, my current job, I'm always able to find a way that connects it to, you know, my, my purpose of why I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I took, I always take pride in the work that I do, but uh, when I was, when I was wholesaling it, I, I didn't feel that connection to an end investor. You know, I was selling to, you know, financial advisors, brokers, people like that. And the times that I actually got the most energy were the times where I was asked to speak to end investor conferences where, you know, mm -hmm. an advisor would bring in their top clients and I would actually be a, a keynote or whatever it would be. And that was when I would get the most excited because I actually had that interaction. And so that's why I love working with students because I get to see that end user of, of the work that I'm putting forth. And so for me, and that kind of comes back to, and again, this is me with the, the psychology hat on, but it kind of comes back to the fact that we have certain psychological needs as human beings. We have our, our individual needs of things like competence, autonomy, et cetera. But we also have these social needs, the, the need to belong, the need to relate to others. And so for me, I'm able to tap into 
both my individual and my social needs through the work that I'm doing. And so that for me is, is really energizing and fulfilling even when I'm uh, doing some of the, the, the more mundane tasks of, of what, the, what the job entails. Um, and so having, having that awareness when I was going through and, and, and also part of the impetus, you know, besides my, you know, uh, asking myself the question, if I could do anything, what, what would I do? Um, I remember around that time I had gone through a process. And so after, after Russell kind of went through some changes and, uh, they, they let go quite a few people in, in, in the, uh, in the workforce and people who I consider to be really good friends of mine and who I, I was just, I was, I was, you know, shocked to see them go. And I was, I was, I was, it was frustrating. Uh, I know, especially for them, but also for, for us who were kind of the survivors, that was the first time in my, my professional career where I thought, well, maybe, you know, this whole dedication to the firm or dedication to the organization, maybe it's not as, it was that first, that was that first crack in the armor, right? That I thought, mm. well, maybe I'm not going to be as dedicated, but the, but, but the company gave me so many opportunities to expand my horizons and to develop my skills and move me all over the place for some incredible experiences that I would never give up. Uh, but I remember I was going for another promotion um, when I was when I was in Australia, and that was going to to bring me potentially bring me back to to the U.S. And this is about I don't know about a year to a year and a half into my time down there, and uh, I was I was passed up for for that promotion. And when I was uh, taking the job in Australia, all I was told from people was, "Hey, this is going to do great things for your career here. You know, having this on your resume that's going to be you know help propel you to the next level." And when I was was going for the job, and I and I you know in, in, in my in my heart, I thought I deserved it, um, and and I got passed over for it. That was also an impetus to say, okay, you know maybe maybe I should you know explore other options. And that's when some of those questions started to to be asked. Okay, you know maybe it's maybe it's not the company. Maybe it's wholesaling. Maybe maybe it's a, a change not just in, in firm but also profession vocation. And so that's where I kind of took that and started to ask myself those particular questions. So there are some internal and external things going on that kind of contributed to that. Um, and, and as far as perseverance, you know, the biggest thing for me was uh, I always had really good support systems around me, you know, people who have, you know, been able to help push me, get me through, you know, I had um, some, some, excellent people and especially at LSU during those times when, you know, I was struggling, you know, I had a, a couple cohort mates who uh, were, were also going through the same thing. So misery loves company. Right. And, <laughs> and we were all kind of struggling through this and, you know, in different ways, but we were kind of supportive of each other. And one of the, one of the things that initially you want to talk about culture, right? So one of the things with our PhD program that we would do is we would have what we call Friday lunch club. And every single Friday, because we didn't have classes on Fridays, we were just, you know, catching up, getting, getting work done, getting reading done, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was, I was informed on my very first, you know, day in, in the very first week that these are not optional. You have, you have to attend these lunches and we'd go and they'd go around and, you know, go to different restaurants around Baton Rouge, which by the way, 
Baton Rouge, Louisiana food. It's fantastic. There are so many good places to go. Um, you will not go hungry. That's for sure. And at first I was, I was so annoyed by it because I'm like, why do I have, I have so much work to do. I'm so out of my element. I have so much reading, so much of this and that. And the, uh, the cohort, uh, that was ahead of mine who kind of spearheaded this, they were like, okay, we're, we're going to force you to go. You, this is not optional. And if you're not here, we're going to have, we're going to harass you until, you know, no other. And what I ultimately found out was that, well, two things, one, you know, we were able to kind of vent to each other about different things that only the people going through that PhD program could really understand. And so it was a way to, to vent, to, you know, kind of commiserate, to talk about things and, you know, be, be in a very, you know, comforting environment where we can have very, very honest discussions. And so that was, that was one part. So that was kind of part of the, that was part of the, the culture. The other part was, Hey, we're supporting each other. You know, we're going to be doing these things. It's going to be a hard program, but we're all in this together. We're not, you know, competing against each other. We're, we're striving together, right? We're actually, um, you know, Sam, I know I'd mentioned this in, in our, our session uh, earlier in the week with Be Like Mike, but I think it's worth saying right now is that, you know, a lot of people think competition is competing against one another. And if you actually look at the Latin roots of, of competition, competere, it's actually, it actually means to strive together to attain something. It's not to strive against, it's to strive together. And so I think that particular group that we had with the, with the PhD program uh, really saw it that way. We weren't competing against each other. We were trying to lift each other up and to, to help each other succeed. And so that was really helpful, especially during some of those times where I didn't think that I was going to be able to do this uh, or that I was smart enough to do this. Like you said, the imposter syndrome was very strong with me. And even in, at times it still is, you know, so I, sometimes I pinch myself. Am I really, you know, a professor at LSU? Am I really, you know, able to, to work with these students? Cause I work with some really incredible students that, you know, they just kind of, they kind of blow my mind and I don't think they realize how much I get to learn from them, but uh, mm. it's fun so much fun for me to work with them but uh they they were a big reason you know and the culture that that we had with the program really helped me get through some of those difficult times but as, as well as you know my family um you know my mom my dad my brother um you know during you know my my now wife uh you know people who were just the rocks for me i mean it was i, I was i was very 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 fortunate it's an interesting parallel between the Friday lunch club and the the 30 days of kindness that you're creating. It seems like there's there's a there's a a parallel between those two. Yeah, for sure. Um so if you if you had the opportunity to talk to student Jake or somebody that's like student Jake, I know you have you're you're instilling virtues and values and community in the students that you're working with. But if you had an opportunity to talk to a student right now that's kind of at a crossroads trying to figure out the next step, uh, and I think a lot of students are doing that currently, and then in the same conversation, the same question, but you know, professional Jake, you know, about ready to jump on a plane to move to Sydney, Australia, uh, or about ready to to jump into a PhD program and leave behind 
you know, a career in financial services from both the student perspective and the professional perspective, and maybe the response is the same. I think a lot of people right now are finding that crossroads coming to them rather than them going to that crossroads, or maybe it's somewhere in between. How would you capture your experience and your advice for how they should approach uh, this moment? Yeah, so first I would say, I I get the question a lot from students who just, they don't know what, what to do. They have a certain major, but you know, there might not be a ton of opportunities in their major, or they might have selected the wrong major and they're in too deep. And um, for me, the, the first question I always ask is, what are you actually interested in? You know, what are the things that you read? Because for me, that was helpful for me to kind of understand the things that were just inherently interesting to me, because the, if you can find a way to pursue a path a professional path where you have that internal interest and not everybody is able to do that, but if you can uh, go, go find, you know, start, start, start there. That's kind of the starting point. So what are you inherently interested in? What sort of jobs then are out there and, you know, will they be, be able to provide you the life that you're, you're looking to have because money is not everything. It shouldn't be everything. But if you, if you want to, you know, pay off your student loans, or if you want to, you know, uh, you know, live in a certain place or whatever it is, you know, try to figure out, okay, what sort of careers are there? You know, what's the, uh, what's the floor, what's the ceiling for those, those particular careers. But the the number one driver should be, what are you inherently interested in? Uh, The second one is, what are you actually good at? You know, what, what, what's your skill set? Because I see a lot of a lot of students will say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, sports and I want to become an agent or something like that, but they have no desire to study law or they have, you know, they, they lack the focus to be able to dedicate towards, you know, that craft or whatever it might be. So it's having that self-awareness as far as, okay, what are you actually really good at? Or what do other people think you're, you're really good at? Because again, sometimes we don't see ourselves the way that others might see us. Um, and, and then that's kind of the, that's, that's the jump off point. And if somebody has a particular company that they're interested in or whatever it might be, um, you know, I'll check to see if, if I know anybody at those firms or see if I, you know, if, uh, you know, what their network looks like, you know, LinkedIn's a beautiful tool. You can see where so many people have been and where they are currently. Um, and, you know, when I was making the decision, to as to whether or not I was going to pursue the 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 PhD, uh, and it was the same. It was the same question I asked myself when I moved to to Florida. Same question I asked myself when I moved to Australia. If I don't do this, will I regret this more than if I go and I fail? And mm-hmm. every time the the question was or the answer was, yeah, I would I would regret it more if I just don't give this a shot than if I did give it a shot and failed. So you have to be willing to fail because there's going to be, there are going to be plenty of times and there's plenty of successful people who have failed miserably, plenty of entrepreneurs who the best entrepreneurs have failed multiple times before they, before they, you know, finally figure out, you know, find their, find their right niche or niche, depending on where you are. Um, (laughs) And so, (laughs) so, but it's, it's one of those things and, and don't, don't be afraid to fail. It's, it's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. Right. 
Um, and so that's, that's a big part of it as well. And the same thing with anyone who's interested in pursuing a PhD. So the joke that I always, you know, give to students who say that they want to pursue a PhD is don't do it. And, uh, it's very tongue in cheek because if you are going to dedicate at a, at a minimum four years of your life, I know a lot of programs they'll say four, but it's usually five. I ended up going for five, but you know, if you're funding it on your own, uh, which which is you know what I what I did, or with loans and stuff like that, um, you you better be very very certain that that's what you want to do, and and know what career that you want to get into. You have to know that you want to be a researcher, or you have to know that um, at least to earn the PhD, even if you want to want to primarily teach, which is what I do, uh, that you absolutely better have an interest in research because you're not going to, you're not going to be able to earn that PhD. You're not going to be able to survive those, those four or five years uh, if you don't have that, that internal interest. Um, and, you know, just make sure that you are, uh, your, your focus is, is solely on that um, because it's not like an MBA. It's definitely not like an undergraduate degree. It's definitely not like an MBA. It's a, such a different experience that um, people who have gone through it will will understand because it's um, it's a it can be and depending on the program uh, it can be a very trying time for a lot of people. So you better have you know some mental fortitude to be able to push through to dedicate your time and have family and friends who are very supportive of the amount of time and dedication that you have to put towards that. Uh, I met my, my now wife, uh, uh, Gabby, she, she, we met right before I was about to take my comprehensive exams. And so I don't know how that actually ended up where, I don't know why she's with me to be honest, um, because there were so many weekends, which, you know, were normally our time to, to be together where I was just going to have to, I was going to have to read, writing notes, you know, all this, you know, taking practice exams or, you know, writing answers to practice questions, but you have to have people who are going to be understanding and supportive of you, whether it's family, um, you know, your uh, friends, your cohort mates, uh, people who will, you know, be able to, to support you when it's going to be a very, very difficult time. Yeah. The, so there's a clear trend in in your story about uh, community identifying community embracing community manufacturing and creating community can you talk about viola and just uh, growing up in a small town and how much of that bleeds through your you know your community manufacturing community and just embracing community throughout the, the whole process yeah so it's it's funny because a lot of people will ask me how can you grow up in such a small town and I usually say how can you not um, you know I was you know there's there's pros and cons to living and growing up anywhere right so um, you know in Viola you know I I could I could never with with my mom working at the school I could never get away with anything I remember <laughs> as a kid she, my mom was the, the secretary at the elementary school and I think I was in third or probably third grade. Um, I got in trouble on the playground and me and me and a few other kids got walked up to the office, uh, to the principal's office and uh, with, with the principal and the principal's like, all right, you two in my office and you, you go to your mother's office because that's the worst <laughs> thing I can pick to do to you right now. And so there's, there's no hiding, right? Everybody knows everybody. And, and, you know, it's, it's a very, very close knit community, but they, you know, 
I, I, I love growing up there. Um, I can't imagine having grown up anywhere different. I just had this conversation with my dad uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so just to, you know, kind of give you, you know, a little bit of background about, about community. Um, you know, my mom, she, about four, four, four and a half years, five years ago, uh, she was diagnosed with multiple system atrophy Parkinson's, uh, which for those of you who are not familiar, it's a, it's a terminal illness where there's, there's no cure. There's no, uh, there's no medicine to help with the, the symptoms. Basically, your body just shuts down. And uh, most people who, who die from it, I think the majority are usually either one of two things. You either die from like pneumonia or from choking because you, you just don't have the function functionality uh, with, your, with your mouth uh, at a certain point. And so I'd gotten, we'd gotten that diagnosis when I was still a, still a PhD student, and it was it was really difficult for me to try and process the fact that, you know, my mom wasn't going to be able to, to live very long and be able to live into retirement and move to Montana with my dad, like, like we had hoped. And so that's why, uh, kind of coming back full circle, that's why I, I started the, the reciprocity assignment and the 30 days of kindness assignment, um, uh, to, to begin with, because, uh, you know, for those who are listening, who probably don't know my mom, um, she's she was the you know, most kind, selfless, decent person uh, that that I've ever known, and she was the one who instilled in me to to look for the best in people, to you know just be selfless and offering help. Don't expect everything in return. Um, it'll everything comes back full circle somehow. So the more the more good that you put out there, the better. And I wanted to do something that was inspired by her and her kindness and generosity, but to be able to uh, show her the impact that she had on, on me uh, and the impact that she continues to have and the reach of her impact through students at LSU. And so when I first started teaching in 2016, it was right, uh, it was just a few months after we had gotten the diagnosis uh, about her. Uh, she had been misdiagnosed with Parkinson's and a bunch of other things in the years leading up to that. So she'd been struggling for a while until she got the official diagnosis. And uh, ultimately, she, uh, for, for Christmas one year, uh, after the first semester of running it, I asked my students for... Uh, a little bit of insight regarding how they um, how they fared from the from the assignment. You know what their takeaways were. Um, you know if they were able to get help. You know what you know who was able to help them. All of that. And so I you know typed it all up in a spreadsheet and gave that. You know wrote my mom a letter because she didn't know that that I was running the and at the time it was just the reciprocity assignment. Um, and so I gave that to her for Christmas and you know it was I, I think one of the better better things I could have could have ever done for her because I could see how much that really meant to her and that knowing her legacy was living on through students. And I would let students after going through, so whether it was um, the, the reciprocity assignment and the um, 30 days of kindness journal, I wouldn't tell them, you know, obviously I'd go through the organizational benefits like we talked about, but then I would let them know, here's the real motivation for me behind this assignment and, and that my students are able to give me, you know, the greatest gift that I'll never be able to repay back to them, which is to give my mom some happiness during her, uh, during some, some, what could have been otherwise very, you know, uh, darker and, and, and more trying days. 
And, uh, you know, un unfortunately, uh, a couple of weeks ago, so uh, right after Mother's Day, so I was able to, to fly up to Wisconsin to be with her for Mother's Day. Um, but she was in the hospital at, this, at, at, at that time because uh, she wasn't uh, doing it, doing as well. And uh, she, she passed away a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually two weeks ago today. Um, and it's been, it's, it's, it's been really hard for, 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 for my family, uh, for, you know, my, my dad, my brother, you know, his, his family, uh, my wife, her family, like it's been, you know, my mom's side of the family, everybody, because even the community, because the, the thing that, you know, I always tell people about is, you know, there's, there have been so many people who helped out my mom, um, you know, when she was basically just kind of relegated to a chair, uh, in, in, in our, in our living room because she couldn't move and do certain things. But, um, there's, um, there were a couple people, you know, Lacey Vinger and one of the students, uh, uh her name is Evelyn, uh, that who knew my mom really well. Um, and they would come by every single week and they would do everything from help pick up sticks in the yard to just sitting and talking to my mom and making her days better. And, you know, people would come by with, you know, food and all that stuff. And this has continued on, you know, since she's passed, you know, people have kind of had this outpouring of love and, you know, once COVID restrictions are lifted, we'll be able to have a celebration of life. And I guarantee you, you know, that the entire town's going to show up for it because she, she affected so many people and I've gotten so many messages from people who I haven't you know, spoken to in years and in decades who have reached out and just said such, you know, wonderful things about, about my mom. And, um, I've had students, you know, LSU students who, uh, caught wind of it, but also who, after finding out about the, the motivation behind the assi the assignment, you know, they've, you know, kind of, you know, reached out and they've been just, you know, fantastic, but, you know, the, the, the outpouring of, of love and support from the people in the community and people who are, you know, helping our family and, you know, who, you know, cared about our mom and saw our mom as, you know, a second mom at the school and everything. Um, you know, that was a, that's, that's been an incredible thing. I mean, my, my wife and I got married, uh, last, last summer and her family jokes because it was, it was like a, one of those Hallmark movies where the whole town kind of pitches in and we had, you know, Lacey and so many other people who kind of helped put this thing together uh, for us. And, you know, it's just, you don't get that everywhere. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I love, you know, where I'm at right now, but you know, you don't really know your neighbors all that well. And it seems like there are a lot of people who, probably know a little bit more about the Kardashian family than they do about the family next door. And I think that's part of the problem mm -hmm. uh, with, with the world that we have is that we, we don't connect as well. We have all the tools to connect, but we don't really connect as well as we, we perhaps should. And um, I think that sense of community is definitely not lost in, uh, you know, little Viola, Wisconsin. And yeah, I'm, 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 I'm blessed to have grown up there and to have had the, the parents that I have and, and, and the, the brother and the family that I have. I mean, it's, I, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine growing up anywhere else. When I ultimately let students know about this motivation behind these assignments, the, one of the big takeaways is I always give them the, the call to action to, as soon as you leave the room today, I want you to call somebody who's had an impact in your life because you don't, you don't know how much that will 
you know, how much they will appreciate that, that you've reached out and said, Hey, you've had a really positive impact on me. Thank you for playing such a great role. And you don't know how much time you have left with people. And yeah. bad of a situation as it was with, with my mom and how hard it was to see her just kind of, you know, lose her, her functionality to losing her speech and, and all that. Um, at least I had the opportunity to, when she was still able to talk, to have those conversations and to say everything that you want to say. And she knows, she, she absolutely 100% knows how much uh, I love and appreciate her, but not everybody has that that opportunity sometimes life comes at you very quickly and people are taken yeah. too soon and out of the blue and you know for me i want to always i want to live a more positive existence uh, than i have um not to say that i was ever negative but just a more positive existence to where i can rest easy knowing that the people who matter most know how much they matter to me and how much of an impact that they've had on me yeah, I mean, intentionality is such a huge part of who you are. It, it's consistent all the way through. The fact that you um, are doing what you like, you're so intentional about what you're doing with very impressionable human beings at an important stage in life. The fact that you're doing it because of your mother's influence and other influences, but it's probably you know, catalyzed by by your mom is just, it's inspiring. When you told me that story the first time, it just struck me in such a profound way. Uh, and just to think that that legacy lives on through 20 something year olds, it's its amazing, man. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm lucky to have that, you know, even though it's a platform of, you know, 50 students at a time, I'm very lucky to have that platform to be able to, to interact with those students in that way to, you know, get them to hopefully see things in a, in a slightly different way and to, you know, you know, my, my goal is obviously to help them learn and to not just learn the important lessons for a particular subject, but to, like I said, grow into better human beings and, yeah. When they reflect on their time at LSU, you know, one of my goals is that they'll think of my class and how, how it felt to what it felt like to be, you know, in those particular, you know, lectures, so to speak, or, and, you know, to, to, to be a part of that class or to be a part of that, you know, project or, you know, whatever it might be that, that, that impact will, will have more of a lasting effect. And in fact, I just, I just received, you know, a few emails uh, over the last couple of days from students who I haven't seen in two to three years saying, Hey, you know, and I, you know, you know, had such a great experience in your class, you know, I'm applying to law school. Would you write me a letter of recommendations, stuff like that? Mm -hmm. I'm always happy to, to, to do that because, you know, I always, I also see it as the better that they do, the better that looks on, on LSU and producing, you know, better young professionals. The work that you're doing, um, the life that you're living is such an incredible tribute to, uh, to your mother, to Viola, to, to, to just, um, to, to all of it. And, uh, and it's creating such a, a positive agent of change, like a positive impact. Um, 
that i mean i'm just i'm blown away by by your work i'm blown away by uh your story and how that story is leading people to think differently so thank you for sharing that jake um you bet if people want to track you down and find your information your research your work that you're doing what's the best way to do that yeah, I'd say I'd say just uh, feel free to email me. Uh, it's it's Jake Smith at lsu.edu. So I try to make it as simple as possible with the the email. Once I started full time, um, you know, feel free to add me on LinkedIn. Uh, but but yeah, um, I'm more than happy to share any of that. Like I said, I'm still young in this career, so I have a, a long way to go. But uh, you know, even though I'm more focused on uh, on the teaching side. I'm still involved with with a handful of handful of pretty cool projects, and like I said, I'm going to um, kick back the uh, the dissertation research to try and tighten that up from the monstrosity that it is right now, with way too many pages and way too many words, to something that people will actually want to read. Thanks for your time, Jake. Appreciate you. All right, thanks, Sam. Thank you.